0: So I'm struck as I listen to these passages of Scripture read, especially the one um, in 1 Corinthians and the, uh, the, the gospel reading, that, that these are troubling passages I mean, and the Exodus passage. I mean, there's lots of killing and maiming and um, there's blood. It's violent. And, and I think that as I listen to these passages and as I think about church discipline and as I've had the great privilege of getting to know you guys, I'm aware that in this room right now, um, there are people that are hearing this from different kind of perspectives. There are some of us that probably as we listen to this, it sounds intolerant and judgmental and harsh. The thought of a group of religious people disciplining you over your private behavior. Well, you saw the movie, maybe, V for Vendetta. It feels a bit like that. Or Orson Welles, 1984, some dystopian novel with there's this big brother up in the sky that's crushing us, and we lose all privacy, and we lose our individualism, and we lose the ability to think for ourselves, and dissension is not allowed, and haven't there been plenty of novels and films that show what happens when people get these idealized view, this idealized view that they can become pure by disciplining one another? Uh, didn't we learn anything, after all, from Hawthorne, right, and The Scarlet Letter, Or you could just go on. The Spanish Inquisition or the Crusades. It just goes on and on in our own country, right? The Salem Witch Trials. I mean, isn't that where this ends? And then I think that there's probably a number of... Well, I know that there are a number of people in this room that you've experienced firsthand harsh, unfair, heavy-handed church discipline. You've experienced... Church is treating you in an unwise, unhelpful way. Now these passages, they're difficult not just because of us and the perspective we have sitting where we are right now. But they're also difficult because of the American religious landscape. <laughs> you know, with our two-party political system, it's almost like we've got a two-party church system. We've got... Democrats and Republicans, and we've got conservatives and liberals. And it's like, can't we ever figure out third and fourth ways to do things? And as we look at the American religious landscape, we see on the one hand there are churches that are so judgmental and they are so intolerant. They drive out all dissenting opinion. They have no room for diversity and ambiguity. They don't allow doubt. They don't allow questioning. They don't allow disagreement or the slightest digression from the party line. And then when we look at the American landscape, on the other end of the spectrum, there are the churches who have defined grace in such a way. They've they've elevated grace to such a position and they've defined it in such a way that it kills everything else off. This is what Karl Barth, a great theologian, said to Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a conversation in his house. He said, Bonhoeffer, you've elevated grace to such a level as killing everything else off. That's not the biblical way. Tolerance has become, for many churches, really a euphemism for indifference and lack of moral courage in the name of tolerance. So these two extremes, legalism on the one side and laxity on the other side, this is our context It's our religious context, um, these two extremes of not being able to imagine what it would look like for somebody else to hold me accountable. On the one hand, we've got people in here who have been abused by churches meddling in your business and churches being unfair. Or maybe you've seen family members treated that way. And then the people in our room who, for you, the idea of accountability just doesn't jive with what Jesus is saying, judge not, lest you be judged, which might be the most well-known verse in the Bible in America today. <laughs> it's certainly the most quoted in a, in a wider context. And we misinterpret this. We think it means I won't judge you so you don't judge me. Well, that's idiotic. That... that that no society could function in that way. And Jesus certainly didn't function in that way. What, he, what he's saying here is do not harbor private judgments against your neighbor, or you will be judged by God for that. Jesus was warning against this kind of hypocritical self righteousness, but he is not in any way telling the church that the church should not judge or discipline its members who have committed themselves to flagrant violations of the will of God. Jesus is clear on that. I mean, I, the gospel reading where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him, confront him. That's an act of judgment. For me to go to Alec and say, Alec, you did this. I have in that moment passed judgment on his behavior and said it wasn't appropriate, it was inappropriate. That's an act of judging. Jesus commands us to do that. So either Jesus didn't know he was contradicting himself, The RPMs of his intelligence just couldn't evaluate the situation. Or he's saying something else. And he is. He's saying something else. And And we hear this in the passage in 1 Corinthians. We hear here this idea that the church is responsible to discipline its membership. This is, this is an inescapable idea for anyone who reads the Bible seriously, starting on the first page and going all the way through to the last page. We heard it in the foundational story. There are people in and there are people out. And the people outside, they've got a different relationship. Something's going People inside, there's something else. We hear it running right all the way through. Paul couldn't talk about church discipline without filling chapter 5 of quotes and references to the Old Testament. What Paul was saying is, you're just like Israel. The rules have not changed. You must discipline your membership. And for us to be a faithful church we must learn how to practice church discipline. We've got to. We've got to do it truthfully and gracefully. We've got to do it with courage. And we've got to do it with wisdom. Now, that's hard. So like I said earlier, at the end of the message this morning, we're going to do something we've never done before. We're going to have Q&A time or... um, we're going to just talk about this kind of stuff. But what I'm going to do up front here in order to set up our kind of Q&A time, so be thinking if you have questions, is we're going to look at First Corinthians chapter 5 from two angles. First of all, why should a church discipline its members? And second of all, what exactly does it mean to discipline a church? What is church discipline? All right. Why church discipline? And, I, and and by that, you could take that in a lot of directions, but I think the way chapter five interacts with that question is chapter five of 1 Corinthians gives us three motivations that need to be at play when a church practices church discipline. First of all, the church in Corinth must discipline this person, this person who's practicing a form of sexual immorality that in a profoundly sexually immoral culture was not even heard of. You know, when the porn industry says, that's bad, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you've gone over the line. That's, I mean, this is a seaport town. Paul says at the end of the letter, right, if you're not going to associate with sexually immoral people, you'd have to leave this town. It's everywhere. And even still in this town, they look at something going on in the church and they say, ooh, So the church must discipline this person who's engaged in this behavior, first of all, motivated by their love for that person, for the sake of the person. That's the first motivation. Look down at verse 5. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But look at this next part. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now go back to chapter 3, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians. You are still of the flesh. Now go back a few more pages to another letter Paul wrote, Romans. Romans chapter 7. And look at verse 5. While we are living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And if you want to, another letter Paul wrote, Galatians chapter 5 verse 19. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, the reason I just read those three, and there's a ton more, is that flesh is what we call a polymorphic word. It means different things. It has different shape, morph, shape, poly, many, depending on its context. Sometimes in the Bible, flesh means your physical body, this material thing. But when Paul is using it here and all these other places I've showed you, he does not at all mean so that this guy's body can be destroyed. When Paul uses the word flesh throughout his letters, he doesn't mean God doesn't like physical stuff and physical stuff is going to be destroyed. That doesn't make sense. And we're the church of the incarnation. We'd have to change our name if that was the case. Paul is using the word flesh in all of these passages as a code word, a suitcase. For that part of our nature that is anti-God. Opposed to God. He doesn't mean your physical body. He's talking about that mode of life. That is lived in pursuit of your own ends. Your attitude of self-sufficiency. That you don't need God. That his ways are not your ways. That your ways are the ways you're going. That's your flesh. And we've got. To see that throughout these passages, the Christian view is that your flesh, in that sense, your anti-godness, destroys you. Sin destroys us, it defaces us. It does not bring life, it brings death. It's foolish to sin. And the type of church discipline that Corinth needs to practice with this church member is for the sake of this church member being restored to life. Being delivered from this disfiguring, defacing bondage that's sin. To lead this person back fully into an experience of the benefits of Christ, That's the purpose of church discipline here. We've got to take God at His word. The Bible consistently presents church discipline as an act of love. As the most loving thing to do. We've got to call this cultural idea that we have floating in our air and many of us in our minds. We've got to name it for what it is. It's foolish to say. Speaking the truth to someone and holding them account for right behavior is mean. That's like saying your doctor's mean for telling you you have cancer. That's not... No, your doctor's mean if he doesn't. He can do it in a mean way. I'm not talking about the mode. I'm talking about the action itself. We've got to lose this cultural idea that accountability and discipline are bad things. In this situation, forgiveness does not take the place of discipline. That's critical. The church doesn't replace the, the, the discipline of this individual with forgiving him. Forgiveness follows repentance, which follows discipline in this situation. That's the first motivation of church discipline. We must love each other so much that there are moments we say to each other, you can't keep doing that. And I love you enough to risk my friendship with you. If I was your doctor and I sacrificed the truth of your situation for our friendship, that is unethical. And it is the same here. We must be willing to do the courageous thing in order to bring about life in the individual. But we've got to admit, and this is what's hard for us, because actually I think that's the easiest of the three motivations. We like the idea of saying church discipline is for the sake of the individual, but that's actually not the largest motivation in the passage. It's not the most important reason in the passage. Not when you look at the passage and feel the weight of what's going on. The second motivation for the church in Corinth to discipline this person, which gets more weight in the passage than the person's restoration, is the health of the church. Now, we don't like that. As radical individualists, we always prefer the individual over the group. But there are communities that would have no problem with that move, saying the group is more to be valued in this moment than... In fact, there are people in this room who think the pasty people in this room are goofy about this. And we are. Because when you're... Right, Mike? In a tribal culture, that Mike worked... I'm sure this was an easy move. And the funny thing is we've missed this in First Corinthians 5. We read it and we like to latch on and say the purpose of church discipline is the restoration of the individual. It is. It's not the primary purpose. Not when it gets to this level. If the issue in verse 5 is this, this man's own health, the issue in verse 6 is the health of the church. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. On the one hand, part of what's going on here is that tolerated sin spreads. A little leaven leavens a whole lot. So one reason for church discipline is because you try to keep leaven from spreading through a loaf. It's like trying to keep tolerated sin from spreading through a church. It's as equally impossible. That's one thing that's going on here. Tolerated sin is contagious sin. I can't tell you how many times I've been in churches where divorce occurs In threes. (laughs) It happens. Bam, bam, bam. I've seen this a number of times in churches. Now, I'm not saying that every time a divorce... I'm not... I'm I'm just saying, look. Tolerated sin spreads. It's contagious. On the other hand, that's not all that's going on here. (laughs) In fact, I think that we even can be okay with that notion. Remove this person because this person is going to somehow destroy other people. But there's another sense in which church discipline is for the sake of the church. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This third motivation, it's not we need to discipline for the sake of the individual or just for the sake of the church resisting the ravages of sin spreading. It's because the church is God's temple and we must guard its holiness. And that's really where the weight of the passage sits. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as a group. This is wrapped up in the notion that sin spreads like leaven. But we have a responsibility to guard the holiness of this community in order to avoid offense to the presence of a holy God. Do you not know that you... That's a plural you. Later on, he talks about you as an individual have the Spirit of God in you. But in chapter 3, 4, and 5, he's talking about on a plural level. Do you as a church not know that as a church, you are the temple of God? So we've got to practice church discipline because we love people, because we love each other and want to protect each other, and because we love God. And his spirit is among us, and his spirit is offended by the presence of tolerated, unrepentant sin. And so because of that, you know if my, my mother um, my mother would feel uncomfortable uh, with, I don't know, my children talking in a certain way that Janelle and I allow our children to talk. It's a generational thing in some ways. And if I catch my children talking in this way that they know offends my mother around my mother, out of my love for my mother, I stop them. I don't want her to be hurt or offended because we love God and His Holy Spirit is among us. There are moments where we say, your sin, we've got to deal with it for your sake, to protect ourselves, but ultimately we will not offend the god who dwells among us now this doesn't mean that we need to develop a culture right of confrontation and nitpicking legalism and witch hunts and monkey trials we don't want this and god doesn't want it in fact first peter chapter 4 verse 8 says love covers a multitude of sins Part of what that means is that we are called to overlook petty slights and not take personal offense. We're called to suck up a lot. And just like in love in those moments because I love you when you sin it or when I sin against you and you love me, it's like a salve. It just covers over that that wound. So I'm not talking this morning about that those kind of petty issues where we don't need to develop that kind of um, rabid culture for perfection. We're talking about what might be called uh, the matter of serious sin. Now, I'm not saying all sin isn't serious. I'm just, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul doesn't list every sin. I mean, he lists six sins sexual immorality, greed, swindling, idolatry, revelry, continued abuse of alcohol. He says, in these cases, you've got to practice church discipline. Now, he gives in several letters several different lists. That's not the only list. Our job in our culture is to figure out what in wisdom requires this type of action. Now, what exactly is it once we figure that out? What does it mean to practice church discipline? Now, we heard in Matthew 18, that gospel reading, that Jesus identifies three phases right the first phase is there's your brother sins against you in the parallel passage in Luke it's not when your brother sins against you it's if your brother sins and you know about it All right. so the first phase is just a private conversation hey Tom I I think you're wrong Bob I I think you care a little too much about which school you get into what's going on with that or Mary why, why are you so wrapped up in what people think about you and the our church should have lots of these kind of conversations going. We live, we're a family. This is what families do. We hold each other to, to ch- raising up to a, a better way of living. This private discipling of one another should be going on all the time about all sorts of issues. With grace, you know, with the salve, the love covering, with all of that at play. And it, but there are times when that fails and it has to go to another level maybe because of hard-heartedness or because of misunderstanding or f- false information or false accusations or incorrect judgment or whatever happens, in those times when it fails and when it's right to proceed to the next level, Jesus said, take two or three others. And there, Jesus, again, he's drawing off the Old Testament when he said, you can't execute somebody without two or three credible witnesses. In other words, when you take two or three others, you don't take your buddies to gang up on them. You take two or three other mature people who have the reputation and the respect among the two of you that they can adjudicate and say, no, Aubrey, you're goofy on this. It's not that big a deal. Just back off. Give some space. Or they can say, no, Sally, Aubrey's right on this issue. That's The the two or three others are verifying. That's what they're there for. And then there are times in the cases of unrepentant sin where um, it goes to a third level. Look at verse 4. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, a few things to notice. First of all, the presence of the powerful Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a congregation is not always a happy thing. It can be for judgment as well as for blessing. When the power of the Lord is there, it can be ominous as well as it is comforting. Secondly, I want you to notice that accountability is one aspect of church discipline, holding one another accountable, but there is a lot more going on here than a couple of guys in AA getting together and holding each other accountable. And that's a good thing. That's part of what it means there's something going on here that is way beyond some voluntary agreement of two men to meet on a regular basis to hold each other accountable to how they're loving their spouses and fathering their children and working at their jobs. This is a powerful, serious thing. And it's so powerful and so serious that when Paul gets into it, he reaches way back to the central story of the Jewish people. The Passover. Now think about what he's doing here. Hand him over to Satan. In the context of talking about the Passover, you know what that means? It means there comes a point when a church has the power and the authority to say, you know what? You're not in this house. And you are not protected by the blood over that door. And out there, you will be destroyed. That's what happened in Egypt. And that's what happens in church discipline. That's what Paul is doing. He's drawing on in and out language. And he's looking at Exodus 12. And you know what happened outside of the house with the blood? There's a phrase, I think it's chapter 12. I think it might be around 13 or something. It says, the destroyer. Not talking about God, but God's use of other forces. It talks about the role of the destroyer in the people outside of the blood-soaked house. This is way more than personal accountability. There comes a moment in the life of a church. I mean, we see it right here in Corinth. By excluding this incestuous man from the community, the church is placing him outside the sphere of God's redemptive protection. It's not saying move him outside of the square walls of this building... No, because a church doesn't always have a building. That's, it's outside of the, the sphere of God's... He is no longer in the house. Chapter 3, verse 9, he calls... He says, you are God's building. This man is no longer in the house. He's exposed to the destructive powers of Satan. And God... And Paul, back in chapter 1, verse 18, he already said, those outside of Christ are being destroyed. And he's saying, a church has the power to do this. So delivering this man to Satan is what we would call excommunication. When they excommunicate him, when they exile him, he is in that moment the result is handing is he's in Satan's hands. Those who blatantly and unrepentantly disobey God's commands repeatedly must be placed outside the protective household of faith. To be inside the church is to find life. To be outside the church is to be in the realm of death. You know what it's like? It's like being thrown overboard in a storm. Jonah, that is a picture of excommunication. That is a picture of church discipline. Who sinned? We've got to get him off this boat because the wrath is coming on us. There comes a point when a person refuses to repent that we must say, we cannot walk with you any longer. You must walk alone. When you repent, then we'll be happy to walk with you but you do not get the privilege and the right to continue to be in the church and to have us loving you and serving you and being in community with you and supporting you and nurturing you and encouraging you. You don't get that privilege or right when there is habitual unrepentant sin. You are not fit for the church, and so you must leave the church. Now, the hope is for redemption. ...of that person and for protecting the church and for guarding God's honor. The hope is that the person eventually says, I can't take it out here by myself. I'm being destroyed. I repent. I miss my friends. I miss community. I miss life. I've done a grievous thing I've sinned. Now, obviously, there is so much more going on in this passage... Um, let's just wrap it up looking at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. It is not the church's responsibility to judge outsiders. To censor the behavior of people outside Christ. We're responsible to discipline those within the church. There are some lines that if you step over them, the church must respond. And sometimes it must respond swiftly. Paul says, no discussion. You don't have a debate when you meet on Sunday. You worship and you do this now. There's all through this chapter, there's an urgency. Other times there's a long process getting to this point. And in the years ahead together, We've got to trust God. (laughs) We've got to trust His Word. And we've got to trust His way of becoming truly human. And sin happens. And sin happens in churches. And so our church in the years ahead together, we will have adventures in redemption. Some on a one-on-one personal level. Some in small groups. Some... And and, and some will be much more public than that. And through all of this, we're going to weep. We're going to struggle. We're going to need wisdom. We're not always going to get it exactly right. There will be tough moments and painful moments. And there will be moments of sheer beauty. Let's pray.